Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. Um, it's been a couple weeks, but uh, we've both been busy, so neither of us have seen that much. Or actually, we have. We've seen a fair amount, but yeah. Stuff we're not talking about, because I was at Sundance, I right. saw a whole grip of movies there. Um, and uh, But no, this is just stuff I've seen. Uh, basically stuff I watched the week before Sundance. I haven't watched anything since I got back from Sundance three days ago because I've been catching up on life. Yeah, uh, and I'm incorporating into mine the stuff that I watch in the classes I teach. Um, specifically, uh, if it's stuff I haven't seen in a while, so I'm trying sure. to... Uh, that's how I'm padding out my numbers. All right, so um, I'm going to start... Hang on. This movie, journal. before we get going, oh, that's I'll right. say that... This is very exciting. The mo- <laughs> It is. Well, you know, I'll tell you why in a second. Okay. I'm very uh, this movie journal is brought to you by Miniflix, the premier streaming site for award-winning short films. Miniflix acquires short films that have premiered at Cannes, Sundance, TIFF, and many more, meaning you can see great short films available nowhere else online. Miniflix also offers several Oscar-nominated and Oscar-winning short films unavailable on typical free video platforms. So now, along with the short films themselves, Miniflix has a blog featuring editorials and interviews. This week, they talk about the cinema Photographers behind the five Oscar-nominated live-action shorts this year. Uh, they break down the stylistic contributions to the films and point out, uh, and will point you to other films that these cinematographers have shot in the past. So, to check out this and other articles, just go to the page for this week's movie journal and click on the mini flicks banner at the bottom. Why is that so exciting, David? Because I got short films on the brain. Oh, yeah. Because of the Oscar nominations. That's right. Which. Um, uh, yeah, well, we will, um, I'm not sure who's going to be doing it this year, but we will have reviews on the website mm-hmm. of, uh, the Oscar nominated short films. Yeah. Um, pro- hopefully within the next week. Um, and that always, that always excites me. Speaking of Oscar nominations, though, okay. yeah. uh, you can pick up our, uh, premium episode. That's right. Uh, we recorded with uh, our friend, uh, Dave Platt about, uh, this year's Oscar nominations, the various snubs and surprises. And, yeah. uh, you can hear our, our take about like should win, will win. And yeah. in my opinion, the general unpredictability of that this year with a ca- yeah. with the exception but, of only a couple categories yeah there are already like i think by the next day there are already some picks that i made on the show that i was like ah, oh, maybe i should have said yeah um but yeah uh so yeah that's available as a premium episode for a dollar fifty i will say this a little hint if you're interested in buying it you might want to wait a few days sure yeah 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 that's, that's just sure. a little hint um <laughs> it's a little tease for think, the i think it's vague enough yeah that the people will be like I now I'm just angry, but that's fine. <laughs> yeah. But no, yeah. Listen to the next uh, main episode of Battleship Retention, the next non-movie journal episode. Indeed, there's an announcement coming. You'll uh, you might want to wait till you hear that announcement to to get the premium episode. Okay. All right. Um, so let's talk about movies that we saw. I saw. I watched the movie. Um, it's available on Netflix. It's directed by Alexei German Jr. It's called Dovlatov. Okay. And uh, it's. It's in the mo the 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 mode of um, well you know um, Lincoln Steven Spielberg's Lincoln okay it's called Lincoln right right feels like it's going to be a biopic of the life of Abraham Lincoln right but it's really just about 
this one segment. Mm-hmm. These are the biopics I tend to like more okay. because they don't try to cram everything in Bohemian Rhapsody style <laughs> um, or, or Ray style. You know, right. I think that's, I think Bohemian Rhapsody is made, like, might like, I think Ray has been our go-to example for a long time mm-hmm. of uh, hacky biopics. Um, uh, and I think uh, Bohemian Rhapsody might supplant it for me. Although having not seen it myself, the fact that it climaxes with one very specific thing and then plays that out in its entirety, I feel like that, again, having not seen it, the choice itself is something I already admire more than Ray. Than Ray. <laughs> okay. Um, in any case, Dovlatov is not that kind. It's more in the Lincoln kind. Okay. Dovlatov, Sergei Dovlatov was a um, noted uh, Nobel Prize winning uh, Russian author. Mm-hmm. Um, except this movie takes place about six years before he ever published anything when he was writing as a uh, newspaper journalist for a, I, I think it was a union newspaper. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was specifically writing for the, the like the shipbuilders union or something. I can't remember exactly what it, what it is. Cause it's been two weeks since I watched it and I went to Sundance. My brain right. is snow. Um, but, uh, uh, so it takes place over the course of just a few days in his life in like November of 1971. Uh, the sort of the biggest thing that, uh, um, you could call a climax in, in this story is that at the end of the few days, a friend of his, who's a writer, uh, defects to America. Okay. But the movie isn't really building up to that. It just sort of happens. I mean, it doesn't it isn't is isn't building up to it? But it's mostly just a few days um, in in his life uh, where he's trying to um, figure out how to scrape together some money to buy a doll for his daughter, specifically a doll made in West Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so there's like the you know the double level of like he needs money to buy this sort of luxury good and it's a contraband luxury good um but every uh, the movie isn't really about the story at all it's uh, every scene takes place in these i mean it doesn't it's not like rigidly every scene is a is a one take uh thing but they're long takes of just him and his friends and it just feels like these vignettes almost situation to situation he's at a party or he's at a cafe um or he's covering there's a there's a part early on that's so great where he's covering this uh this event for the newspaper in which they're having workers dress up as um russian literary figures from the past and read quotes that are that apply to the ship they're building or whatever and he and so he's supposed to be covering it essentially i mean he's the union it's a union newspaper paper he's supposed to be covering it essentially as propaganda right but he can't not make fun of it <laughs> um, and uh it's a, it's a really really dryly funny scene the the movie in general has a very inside Lewin Davis type of feel to oh, it nice. in that it's just here. We're talking about a writer instead of a songwriter, but it's just a, you know, a few days out of his life seen to seeing different interactions with different people. It also has the same, a very similar color palette. Okay. Um, and I do think the actor kind of looks like he could be like Oscar <laughs> Isaac's like older brother maybe. Okay. Um, but, uh, and the cinematographer, by the way, is the same fella who just got nominated for an Oscar for Cold War. All right. Um, so, uh, Dovlatov, available on Netflix. 
uh, no one seems to be talking about this movie yet, but I think it is the Russian, like it was the Russian, uh, submission. submission for, for the Academy Award this year. Um, no one seems to talk about it, but it's really a pretty decent movie. Hmm. Uh, so it occurs to me, I would like to, so I, I have four movies to talk about, but I'd like to talk about two of them together. So, uh, I think you can go again if you want, and then I'll, then I'll do mine. All right, let's do it that way. Um, so the next one that I watched, oh, I'm so glad I watched this now. Okay. I'm going to, I, uh, you know, you have blind spots in your life Mm -hmm. as a film, Uh, film viewer and we have a podcast and we're critics and like I feel like sometimes I feel bad about certain blind spots but I want to make I wanna, I'm going to make it clear to this day to this day but we're recording right now I have not seen Dario Argento's, Argento's Suspiria okay I've never seen it so with that out of the way I watched Luca Guadagnino's Suspiria and it's fucking great okay it's so good I feel like I don't understand <laughs> I wonder if, and I do wonder if the reason I made sure to say that I hadn't seen the original, I wonder if the, cause the movie wasn't that well received at all. Really? It wasn't. No. Um, um, and I wonder if a lot of people, it's a lot of people just not liking it because they prefer the original or because it's too different from the, I don't even know how different it is. It's, I know it's like an hour longer than the original. So that's something yeah. it's over two and a half hours. I didn't know that uh, until I watched the movie. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, and the story is such that it's not like you can tell when it's going to be ending. Uh, the, right. the film, you've seen be, the original, yes, but not the new one. No. Okay. So together we are one whole f- film critic and I'm, uh, and I'm not, I'm not in love with the original. It's, oh, okay. it, it's great in a lot of ways, but I've seen it the once I have no real desire to see it again, but there are people that absolutely adore it. And I feel like, probably just first off they probably question the decision to even remake it and then to remake it but then to me if you're going to remake something you'd want to have it be drastically different that's exactly yeah Um, because you know um we have the original already yeah i don't know if you remember uh this is like almost 10 years ago now david gordon green was going to remake suspiria oh i didn't and his whole thing was not to the extent of gus van sant doing doing psycho but that kind of thing Hmm. he was going to make it like Set at the same time, which this one is, I guess, but um, <coughs> using essentially the same script, it was going to be like a very faithful mm-hmm. remake. Um, and yeah, I'm with you. I don't like. What do you want to? We don't need that. Unless you know it's I mean? unless it's an experiment, which is right. what Gus Van Sant's Psycho increasingly feels like. Yeah, um, but not that successful. I mean, I right. guess <coughs> Gus Van Sant's Psycho is just like a well. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Well, uh, in, in my Hitchcock class, we watched it and talked about not merely the, when you have something that is meant to be exactly the same, it, it underlines the differences Yeah, and you see what Gus Van Sant was able to do even while seeming to do the same thing. Like the character of Marion Crane seems so much more independent Hmm. in the new one as played by Anne Heche. And she's pretty icy, uh, to, her boyfriend who seems much more committed to her and the lines are the same, but the performances are different. And then having one in color makes a huge difference as well. So there's also, I learned from 
that documentary 7852, mm. there's an extra shot in the shower scene that Hitchcock storyboarded, but it was considered to be too, oh, neat. too lewd or too revealing. Um, it's when she dies, there's a shot of her draped over the yes, bathtub where you can right. sort of see her whole ass, I guess is the, what, and, yeah. and that wasn't in the Hitchcock storyboard that shot and then didn't do it. I don't know if he didn't shoot it or, or edited it out because it was showing too much of, uh, the actress, you know? Well, and in, um, in the Truffaut interview with Hitchcock, that's what he said. He goes, I wanted to see her whole ass. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's not actually true. <laughs> anyway, back to, yeah, no, I, I, I okay. figured as much. Um, cause you didn't do it in Ian's, uh, Hitchcock <laughs> well, that's voice. That's Freddie Hitchcock. Oh, yeah, that's his yeah, brother. Yeah, that's a whole other thing. Um, God, how about the Oscars? Are they going to suck or what? Not showing, uh, all these categories, including cinematography, apparently. And then, only two out of the five songs. Oh, I think they walked that back. I think Did they? Today, I think they are doing all five songs. Okay. I read. That excites me partially because, boy, I hope Tim Blake Nelson gets to sing in front of the Oscars. Uh, in, yeah. In front of the, uh, not that they're going to win or anything, but yeah. when it's a fun song like that, I, I'm excited to see it. So back to Suspiria. Um, I think it's a very beautiful movie. I also think I like shit about witches and this is about witches in a very, uh, in a way that really goes all in on like the, right. um, uh, the, the sort of dark underworld, hellish religiosity of like a witch, mm-hmm. you know, like a, a coven that there's, that they're not just like, it's not just, they have su- superpowers. There's a whole theology mm-hmm. and a whole and, and, and rituals. And, uh, I don't want to give too much away, but it definitely, that stuff really comes to the forefront really, uh, at the end, which is a really fantastic, um, Baroque, uh, ending that Suspiria has. But I also think that it's a very much a movie, um, in a, uh, uh, a distressingly cynical way, but a movie for our time in that it's about, you know, it takes place in Germany mm-hmm. in the seventies, you know, still in the long shadow of, of the Holocaust. And obviously yeah. in, uh, you, you know, why, why you've got, uh, cause the, I'm not sure if this is the case at all in the original, but the dance Academy in this one is literally alongside the Berlin wall. Like you step outside and the wall is right there. And that's like, and, and there's a lot about the movie that is commenting on um, the, that sort of divide because even within the coven, there is a divide because there is a change in leadership coming and some people are following one of the witches and some people are following, following the other. And I think the movie has some, uh, like I said, some cynical things uh, or some pessimistic things at least to say about the way that um, a a horror or, or, or a tragedy or something um, in our in a, in a society tends to lead to factionalism after the fact. Oh boy, people yeah. people retreat to different <laughs> sides, and um, it makes it harder to get anything done, and it makes a, it makes the world a more paranoid and unsure and scary place. And uh, paranoid, unsure, and scary is exactly what's going on mm-hmm. in Luca Guadagnino's Suspiria. I really, really loved it. All right. So, having not seen some big movies of 2018, one would probably, I feel like it it would be safe to wonder why on earth I'm spending my time watching two documentaries about Fire Festival. (laughs) Um, 
And you know what? I, I'm not going to argue with you. I should not have watched them. I should have watched other things. Um, but uh, what I will say is that um, aside from following the events at the time, because I found it fascinating, um, the reason that I watched them was it was for kind of academic reasons, uh, similar to what I was saying about Gus Van Sant's Psycho, is that when you have something that's similar, that is in fact exactly the same, these two documentaries are talking about the exact same thing, and the players are all the same, and it's not like one is a documentary and one's a narrative. They're both documentaries. Mm-hmm. So it's like, all right. So we now have two documentaries made about one thing. So now it can be a very interesting exploration into what filmmakers can do uh, to put their own personal stamp on something and different ways to approach similar material. Um, And so so there is the Netflix documentary Fire and then there's the Hulu documentary Fire Fraud. Um, I watched fire fraud first Hmm. and then I watched fire and I was so happy that I, uh, I I don't think officially they're meant to be seen that way. I think each, I think Hulu and Netflix would prefer you pick theirs. Yeah. But the Hulu Hulu documentary even acknowledges someone in the film acknowledges there are two of these being made. Um, so yeah, and then the Hulu one did come out first by I think like two days or something. Okay, so you, and you, you watched it in order of release. Exactly. Yes, that was. Uh, it was more just. I don't know. I, everyone was talking about the Netflix one, and so I thought, well, I'll watch the Hulu one first. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it's great. It's great to watch them in that way. Not only do you get more of a complete sense of the uh of the event and everything that happened but you get different tones as well um i think the netflix one is a bit more i mean they both are a little but i feel like it's a bit more oh hell what are you schadenfreude yeah and and it feels a bit more like like tabloid fun like uh as if the director chris smith who is director of american movie yeah yeah um and who I think actually in that uh, has tremendous uh, sympathy and probably empathy because they're filmmakers yeah. uh, for his subject. Whereas in this, um, he certainly has empathy for some of the people that were involved. Um, but as far as, you know, like the rich kids that that, wound, that went and wound up not in a great position and then Billy McFarlane himself, Chris Smith is very much like, can you believe this shit? Like it feels like that. Uh, fire fraud it, and that one is more about the larger event fire fraud is all it focuses a lot more uh on billy mcfarland to the extent that they actually interviewed him um and and what's interesting is the, there's an arc to his interview like mm-hmm. when they cut back at first he's he's very charming very forthcoming very apologetic he's everything you would want someone to be in that moment and then as time goes on once the questions get a little bit yeah, a little bit deeper. Now he's starting to say, "Well, there's a, you know, there's I can't talk about it because the case is ongoing." And he starts to get defensive and cagey, and it really is like you can see how this guy could con people. But did you read about why he's only in one of them? Uh, no, the Hulu filmmakers compensated him for his appearance. Chris Smith wouldn't pay him to oh, be interviewed. Okay. 
Okay. So apparently that's, well, everything is about bringing in money (laughs) uh, for him. And so, uh, yeah. And it's, it's, but that's, that's the thing is his, him being paid did not equal him being a hundred percent forthcoming. Uh, and so, so even just to that and in that one, I feel like they make a few larger points, uh, about who this guy is, how someone like this can exist. They draw a couple of lines between certain other very successful people that were able to con people. I'm talking about Donald Trump. Uh Um, and, uh, and they talk about how this type there there are new types of cons solely because of social media and because of like influencers within social media and that like hey all you got to do is get them mm-hmm. and you've got everyone else and incidentally they can be gotten just through money yeah. um, and it's so I feel like I feel like fire fraud is I think more interesting as a film, but I'm glad I saw the other one too, because the other one really captures the general reaction to it, which was the, the schadenfreude kind of thing. And so, uh, I was very happy. I watched them together, not unlike watching, you know, the people versus OJ Simpson and OJ made in America, but even that one is scripted and the other isn't. Uh, but it's just, it's, from an academic standpoint, it was really interesting to see what the directors brought to it and clearly what they wanted out of their, their films. So I would recommend if you can watch them both. Um, but if you had to pick one, I would go with the Hulu one. All right. Next up, I watched Oscar nominee border. Okay. The, uh, the, the Swedish movie about a border, uh, a customs agent, mm-hmm. um, who has, uh, uh, a unique knack for being able to figure out who's trying to sneak some shit across the border. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then she meets a guy um, that she has an immediate connection to. She doesn't first understand why. And then he sort of introduces her to a whole new world that she didn't know existed. I'm, I'm dancing around what the movie's actually about. Cause okay. I don't know if you've read what it's about. I have not, but it is a, uh, there's a, there's a slow reveal and then all an all at once big sort of moment of like, Oh, this is, I do kind of feel like the film's nomination might give one an idea of the twist kind of nomination is. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, in any case, uh, it's actually a really, really, um, touching movie in a lot of ways about a, um, uh, a person, I'm trying to look up the, the actress's name who plays the lead, but, uh, uh, a, a person who Eva Melander is her name. Um, I enjoy when you make clicking noises okay. while you're trying to figure <laughs> stuff out. Um, person who doesn't fit suddenly finding like that joy of finding that there is someone in the world or somewhere in the world that they belong. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, I think that's, it's it's ironic that that's almost a universal experience because if we under like we assume we tend to yeah. assume everyone else is more comfortable in the world than we are yeah um, but really everyone feels like this in some place in some way um, and it it's always great to find the place where you belong um, but then the movie ends up going to some darker places where she has to sort of decide does my finding a place where I belong undo everything that I've come to like and respect about the world that I was Hmm. raised in. Interesting. Um, 
and uh, I, I think it's a, uh, it, it's, it's ideas are mostly, I mean, everything I've just said in terms of themes is mostly up on the surface, but it also has, you know, a sort of, uh, um, wild supernatural element I'm giving more away, uh, but that's treated very matter of factly. And the two lead performances, the guy, uh, his name is Iro Milanoff. They're both great. Um, so it's a really good sort of two person, a two hander for the most part, mm. um, about, you know, people finding potentially their soulmate, um, that just happens to have this, uh, Again, this supernatural bent to it. Uh, yeah, we're checking out. All right, so uh, now we'll get into movies that I have rewatched and that listeners have probably seen, but it, I guess it's not necessarily a guarantee if you go back far enough. Um, and I haven't seen this movie in quite a while. It is Robert Vinay's The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Um, I watched this, of course, in the world history, uh, the world film class that I'm teaching uh, as we go through um mostly chronologically we might skip around a little bit later but uh uh and the next one will be will fit into this as well but um uh so i adore german expressionism um i liked it before i knew it had a name mm-hmm. um you know when you when you're our age and you have grown up watching for example tim burton movies but then you go on and you watch well, in some cases, maybe not everybody, you watch like Guy Madden or something. Uh-huh. Um, you come to understand, and then and then when you start to learn about German Expressionism, you realize like, oh, this thing is this thing is, from a stylistic standpoint. Obviously, there are movies that had a bigger impact on storytelling, but from a stylistic standpoint, uh, Expressionism like reaches far and wide like into film noir and that kind of thing so i'm a little bit distracted because the cops are coming to get me uh they're hovering right above the house yeah um so wow this is this is very common in my neighborhood actually is it is okay like it's not uncommon here but it for it to be as close as it clearly is is actually kind of new to me I th- i've always i wonder if it's because a i live near a police station mm. and oh, b sure. i also live near the north hollywood train station mm. and i feel like so there's a lot of foot traffic and stuff so they sure. tend to use the helicopters i think to try and track people down a lot okay. it is this this sort of thing is very common in my neighborhood oh, okay all right um well i hope it's not distracting the listeners too much i hope they can't hear it that much but anyway um but yeah uh i do think that probably my favorite expressionist film i mean officially it's probably the last laugh which i uh, adore um but as that is kind of a straightforward drama it's sort of is something of an outlier expressionism tends to be more like crime or horror or Mm -hmm. sci-fi based and so looking at it from that standpoint i do think caligari is my favorite i think it's because there's such an artificiality to expressionism i think caligari like fits the bill the most like the sets are just so unbelievable uh as opposed to something like nosferatu which definitely is expressionistic but they found ruins and then just shot there Mm. um whereas the the set the art design the makeup like it's all it's all meant to be theatrical and it's all meant to really stand out and and the story itself i think is genuinely creepy and 
and the the director's patience in letting it unfold and then the performances specifically this time i i had a lot more appreciation for conrad veit's uh, performance uh before it was was it uh Werner kraus who plays caligari anyway um but yeah i just uh i haven't seen i hadn't seen the movie in a long time I was very happy to rewatch it. The students seem mostly seemed to enjoy it. Uh, a lot of them really appreciated the twist uh, in the story about uh, whose perspective the story is actually from and what that means. Um, you should oh, what um, you should go to when when next you're in Berlin. Okay. You should go to the Deutsches Kinematik Museum. They got, a, they got a whole bunch of expressionist, a whole oh, section I've, on expressionism. There. I have no doubt. Yeah. Uh, the next time I find myself, you know, if I wake up in Berlin, <laughs> yeah. uh, aside from asking how did I get here, I'll be like, I'm not looking a gift horse in the mouth. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to go <laughs> first to... off. How did I get here? Second off, how do I get to the <laughs> Deutsches Kinematik? Exactly. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, now I watched this 2018 is the year of movies that were produced many, many years ago, but not released until 2018. Mm-hmm. You've got the other side of the wind. Sure. You've got amazing grace, the Aretha Franklin oh, uh, that's right, yes. film. And you've got this movie that no one seems to have heard of, but that they played at the arc light. It's called the Bruce McMouse show. Bruce McMouse. Bru- the Bruce McMouse show. Okay. It's a, it's a 60 minute film that is a wings concert film slash an animated film about a family of mice that live underneath the stage where wings are playing. (laughs) Um, Why why aren't people talking about it? I know it's crazy. Um, it's not that great. Um, (laughs) I mean the wings cause the, the wings concert footage is clearly just concert footage, Mm -hmm. but then there's also on stage banter that is clearly scripted because Paul McCartney, you know, great musician and songwriter, yeah. not the best actor. I can see that. Yeah. Um, and so, and so take the, yeah. So there's the wooden awkward banter of him either talking to the band members or talking to the camera and then occasionally add talking to an animated mouse that isn't actually there. And it was animated in later. <laughs> um, cause the premise is there's this family of so mice. He knows about this family. Uh, well, okay he ends it. up knowing because the, so within the, the story of the movie is that the father of the family of mice used to be in the music business and he hears wings are playing and he's like, I'm going to go see if they have representation. I'm going to manage them. I'm going to, I'm going to offer to be their manager. And then, but they're, so he was uh, in the regular music business, not like a mouse music business. You know, that's actually unclear. <laughs> um, but, uh, he's got two teenage kids who love the wings. um, um, the one is, uh, the, the son is kind of a stoner type and the daughter's, uh, kind of a, uh, kind of a sexist caricature of like an airhead type sure. teenage, teenage girl, except a mouse. Um, but then, yeah, there's just long sections that are just wings playing songs. Um, and it'll, yeah, cause it'll forget about the mouse story for like three songs in a row <laughs> and then it'll go back uh back to that um but there was a couple in front of me um uh oh is that the cops literally right outside yep oh wow it is getting close um there's a couple in front of me who i think were younger than i am and were clearly big wings fans because <laughs> because like paul mccartney would be like all right this next song's called 
hi, hi, hi. And they were like, yes. <laughs> they were so excited. They were playing. Like, it was many years ago. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I went and paid Arclight prices to, uh, to see this. I'm glad I did. What's next for you? <laughs> or do you have more questions about the Bruce McMouse show? Uh, I have a poster, by the way. They were, yeah. they were giving out free posters of the Arclight. <laughs> so I have a poster of the Bruce McMouse when show. When was this made? 1977. I mean, 77. But it was okay. never released until uh, sometime last year. Never never played theatrically anywhere. How did the animation look? Uh, it's very 1977. It's not okay. It's not bad animation. It's not... Okay. Yeah. It, um, some of the... Uh, Sound wise, some of it isn't great, especially because they're the, all the mice have very thick accents. Oh, okay. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I don't think they're supposed to be Liverpool. I'm trying to remember where it actually takes place, uh, where in England, but they have very thick accents that sometimes I could not tell what they were saying. My next question is one that requires speculation uh-huh. on your part. Who was this for? <laughs> I think it was for Paul McCartney. Okay. All right. <laughs> Who said, well, I like my band. <laughs> I want a concert film, but I also want mice. Yeah, a little, mice of, little cartoon yeah. mouse family. Yeah, I, I think this was a, a weirdly like a passion project for him, maybe. <laughs> it's like, you know, Paul, you can make two movies. Nope, I don't have the time. <laughs> um, all, all right. right. <clears throat> so, uh, okay. Next for me is, and, of and course. Last for you, right? Last for me, yeah. yes. Is, of course, Battleship Potemkin. Um, which I have not seen in quite a while. Uh, I have, when in the classes that I've been teaching for the last, you know, uh, year or so, uh, I've shown when talking about editing, I've shown the Odessa step sequence. Mm -hmm. Um, and it is, and I feel bad showing that because it's a, it, it suggests, I mean, the kids don't care one way or another, but it suggests to me that I only value that sequence right. when in fact the film itself is just marvelous in general. And, yeah. and don't get me wrong. That sequence definitely set the standard for any kind of large disaster movie or sequence. Uh, today I showed kids like a clip from Titanic and just like, and it, and it rhythmically it's, ex- it's exactly the same. Um, but, uh, but yeah, what, teaching this class the way that I am, it does give one an appreciation for, uh, for the development of film and just how vital Soviet montage was that like you can, you can say there was pre and post, like in the world of film, there was before Soviet montage and after, and we are still living in after. If you, if you look at the way these films are put together, it's the way movies are put together. It's sort of like when you hear about the Lumiere brothers deciding, Oh, we're going to start projecting stuff. And we all just decided, yeah, that's how it's going to be done from now on. Mm. Uh, but in this case, from a, from a filmmaking standpoint, just the idea of like, all right, we now have a shot of these four sailors on the deck of the, of the battleship. They're having a conversation. We are now going to, we get the wide shot now a little bit closer. Now we're cutting to now one character's handing something to somebody else. We're cutting to an insert shot of the hands. It's, it's how movies are made now. Right. And having for the last few weeks watched, um, you know, great train robbery and trip to the moon and then, and Caligari itself, as much as I love it. Um, 
you watch those and they still feel very old timey. You watch Potemkin and it's, yeah, it's silent, but it's shockingly modern. Like it just in, I'm, I'm very eager to read the the kids like reaction to it. I don't know how much they will enjoy it, but, Mm -hmm. uh, a common thread is, has for the last couple weeks of them, have been them talking about the films we've been watching have felt very slow. Mm-hmm. Potemkin does not feel slow. Even I feel it a little bit as I'm watching it, but even in the, in the less exciting scenes, it does not feel slow to me at all. And so from a filmmaking standpoint, it is, I think exhilarating. Um, but then, um, from a propaganda standpoint, it's also really interesting as well. Like there's a scene when the characters are, you know, because there's various protests throughout the film and you know, the people are, are saying we want a revolution and all that. And then one guy, one guy in the midst of a crowd, (coughs) I forget the exact frame uh, phrasing, but it's something like, uh, death to the Jews. And so, and then everybody looks at him like horrified and then they beat the shit out of him. (laughs) And, and it's like, what does that have to do with anything? And it's that Soviet communism was considered people there. There was talk that it was very anti-Semitic. And so Uh, propaganda being all about selling, they need to quell any, any rumors, any worries that it is anti-Semitic. Like, look, see, this guy is is anti-Semitic and everyone's against him. Incidentally, Soviet communism and especially Stalin was extremely anti-Semitic. But, um, yeah, as it turns out, propaganda isn't always true. Uh, but so it, it was, it's, it's fun to look at it from that angle. And that as much as we do, love uh Potemkin and as as important as it is we sometimes get swept up in the in the discussion about the impact of it that we sometimes gloss over the fact that like oh it was propaganda it was meant yeah. as that it was what was yeah. it um you know the pravda and and uh so like so it's fun to look at it that way but it's still impactful yeah. on its own again i'm very interested to see what the what my students say my favorite corny dad joke turned into the film snob joke is what's black and white and red all over battleship Potemkin. nice <laughs> that's great did um, you make that up? no no oh, okay that's an old joke oh, okay. um uh yeah i i honestly would be curious to hear what your students yeah. <laughs> uh, say about it uh, as well all right so speaking of editing um, I mentioned this movie uh, just a second ago, but I didn't want to let the cat out of the bag. This is what I watched. My final film this week is Orson Welles' The Other Side of the Wind. Oh, oh my God. It's astounding. Isn't it? Um, it is. I mean, all of his films are abs- are, 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 are precious, um, but it is up there with the best of uh, his work. Mm-hmm. And um, especially because I'm going to go back to something you said on the movie journal two weeks ago, I think, um, or the last movie journal. Um, about like let's not pretend this is an autobiographical <laughs> because it does feel yeah. even if it, even if there are differences between Wells and Jake Hannaford, this movie does feel like Orson Welles thinking out loud, mm-hmm. maybe more so than any other movie because he's always like he's always been a bit of a showman. So there's always been in so many of his movies there's a a, a sort of there's a layer or a curtain in between the auteur and the audience. Yeah. This one feels the most like him speaking directly. Um, especially because the characters 
you know, not only does Jake Hannaford somewhat re- represent him, Peter Bogdanovich represents Peter Bogdanovich. Yeah. Um, what's her name represents Pauline Kale. Like everyone. Yeah. There's s- a, there is a, um, a Sybil Shepherd uh, right. character. Yeah. There's a lot there. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and yet it all feels so beautifully put together. The, the editing, the, the editors here deserve, um, uh, a lot of credit. Um, and it's, I, I think, uh, I, I should have known that it wasn't going to be, cause I was like hearing about, it, I was like, okay, it sounds important or whatever, but autobiographical seventies, you know, you've got, John Huston in it, who made around the same time made Fat City, which is a great movie, but is like heavy. And I think I was kind of expecting the other side of the wind to be heavy, and it is in yeah. its own way, but it's actually a lot of fun. Yeah, the movie because it's a party, um, and some of it is sad because he's got these like hangers-on sycophants yeah. that I kind of uh, pity, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in a, in a lot of ways. But um, the movie is um, it just especially self-aware in a good way. Um, and is, uh, is sophisticated and yeah, surprisingly satirical. I think when it comes to, um, the film within the film, Oh, absolutely. You know, um, uh, and it just seems like this isn't much like with John Houston making fat city, which is, um, uh, again, a really good movie, uh, and feels so of the moment, other side of the wind isn't some like the last like cough of a dying lion of cinema. It is absolutely vital and of the moment, not just yeah. for 1972, but for 2018 as well. Yeah. I mean, it just, it's, uh, there's such, it's just this crackling energy that feels very much like a party. Um, yeah. admittedly as I was watching, I was like, right, this is why I don't go to parties. Yeah. A party I would never want to <laughs> yeah, no, not go at all. to, but yeah. And it's, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny, but I think that it's it's satirical almost to the point of just being straight up bitter. Uh, and I don't say that in a, in a negative way. Like if anybody had a right to be bitter about Hollywood, it was Orson Welles. Um, but uh, but yeah, and yet at the same time, there's still tr- there's still tremendous affection for pretty much everybody involved yeah. uh, in the film, whether it be like the Pauline Kael type or the or the 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 critics or the academics or whatever yeah. uh yeah. who would seek to kind of stand at a remove but also above everything uh well seems to he likes them and he likes the oh that one oh that one guy who like i think he was like a, a former child star and he's he stopped drinking i think the character's name is billy uh oh, right. but i yeah, might yeah. be wrong that but just like, like oh he's so heartbreaking yeah and 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 the central relationship between Jake Hannaford and and the uh, Bogdanovich character, I think, is very yeah. very touching. But, but it doesn't go out of its way to create yeah. that. But the other central relationship is between <clears throat> Jake Hannaford and John the, Dale. Uh, yeah, the actor. Yeah, um, and yeah, we didn't. Get it. I can't remember. I don't think you brought it up two weeks ago. I didn't bring it up yet today. But the the homoeroticism or the yeah. suggestions in this movie um, are. Are, are pretty heavy, but that goes toward you were talking about. Well, saying Jake Hanford's supposed to be a Hem- Hemingway type, I think uh, Hemingway probably had some uh, impulses that he was uh, sure. um, trying to cover up. Uh, but yeah, the part with the uh, the, the the school principal, um, mm-hmm. yeah, that was a bit upsetting. Um, yeah, boy, 
And that's uh, and, and I like that I like that he does not allow Hannaford to be like just purely a character of of humor humor or wisdom or just kind of this ethereal mysticism like where everything yeah. he says is like some strange uh, like a cone adage. Yeah. 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 Um, that he himself is like a very troubling person that you don't always enjoy spending time with. And I think, and Houston does it wonderfully. Yeah. He's great. Um, I was uh, Peter, Peter Bogdanovich is uh, obviously he's directed a lot of good movies, but he's also a really good actor. And it also, because I've also been, as you know, I've been rewatching the Sopranos yeah. and he, where he plays Dr. Elliot Kupferberg. Um, <laughs> and he's so willing to play blowhards. Yeah. Um, and, and like not really ask you to forgive them, but also kind of knows there's one, well, there's one part that I'm not going to, okay. I'm not going to actually say it, but there's, um, Melfi is talking about a time that Tony accosted her in, in, in her office. And he's like, and she's like, he apologized for calling me that terrible word. And Elliot goes and says the C word yeah. like, Oh, and she's like, yes, Elliot. <laughs> um, um, but then I also remember the, there's the part, I don't even remember. Cause we found out in one episode that, Elliot's daughter and Meadow's daughter both go to, to Columbia. Yeah. And there's a scene where Elliot sees Tony in the parking garage, but doesn't know it's him. Mm-hmm. And then is later telling Melfi the story about, um, this angry guy in the parking lot. And he's like, for all, I mean, he was probably just another parent or more likely a maintenance worker. <laughs> <laughs> and what's interesting is that, I do think he's a very good actor, but for a long time I thought he was a very limited actor because he's so monotone. Uh And then you look at him in other side of the wind. And not only is he like kind of this big brassy guy, he's doing shockingly good impressions. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and you're just like, wow, what, how did like, he could have pursued acting and would have been, and probably would have done fine. Um, and he does have, uh, you have not watched documentary now, right? No, I've never watched it you would love it. Okay. Uh, especially the more documentaries you're aware of. And so they have like a two parter that's like the kid stays in the picture and, uh, and just a very Robert Evans type. And they interview a number of celebrities who tell stories and, and, uh, they interview Peter, Peter Bogdanovich. He goes, yeah, we had a bet. And if, and if I lost, I would have to wear an ascot the rest of my life. <laughs> and you see how that turned out. 